Psalm 69, verses 13 to 21. But I pray to you, Lord, in the time of your favour. In your great love, O God, answer me with your sure salvation. Rescue me from the mire. Do not let me sink. Deliver me from those who hate me, from the deep waters. Do not let the flood waters engulf me, or the depths swallow me up, or the pit close its mouth over me. Answer me, Lord, out of the goodness of your love. In your great mercy, turn to me. Do not hide your face from your servant. Answer me quickly, for I am in trouble. Come near and rescue me. Deliver me because of my foes. You know how I am scorned, disgraced and shamed. All my enemies are before you. Scorn has broken my heart and has left me helpless. I looked for sympathy, but there was none. For comforters, but I found none. They put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. Um, I'm Annie, and I'm going to continue reading from John 19, verse 28 to 37. All right. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished, and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine was a jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers, therefore, came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus, and then those of the others. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you may also believe. These things happen so the scriptures would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And as another scripture says, they will, they will look on the one they have pierced. Well, thank you, Tim, and thank you, Annie, for reading for us. Hello, everyone. It is lovely to have you with us today. Uh, my name is Wal. I'm the senior minister here at NCA Church, and uh, it really is great to be together uh, this morning. And thank you so much to everyone who helped make uh, outside before work. It was lovely to spend that time uh, in our community together. And it's good for us to be here now as we uh, turn our thoughts uh, to the things of Good Friday. Uh, in his book, uh, Dominion, uh, British historian Tom Holland argues that the modern world simply cannot be understood without reference to the Christian faith. Um, I don't think we can really accuse him of bias in this. As far as I know, he is not a Christian man. And he actually seems to find the whole thing something of a puzzle. Uh, I don't think it's as if he's unaware of other alternatives. He's also written on the Persian Empire, on the Roman Empire, 
uh, on the, the British Middle Ages. So he's a knowledgeable man, historically speaking. And yet it's Christianity that he regards as the movement that has really formed the world that we have all inherited. Um, even modern forms of secularism, he suggests, have a distinctly Christian shape to them. Um, I think this weekend is one of the times where we see this, actually. Uh, two out of only three days every year where just about every shop is shut. The other, of course, being Christmas Day. Have you noticed that? Um, it's no accident that the three of them together really stand at the heart of the Bible's message about Jesus, his birth, his death, his resurrection. And it reflects an understanding that these events are public goods. They are for everyone. And so it's no wonder that Tom Holland's next book, uh, Revolutionary, uh, is a collection of essays about who Jesus was and why he still matters. Uh, one of the contributors to that book says this, there can be no serious doubt that Jesus Christ is the single most important figure in at least Western, arguably world, history. Now, friends, if that's right, it is a very good thing that we are here today to remember the event that sits behind what we still refer to as Good Friday. And so our passage is from John 19 that we've just had read for us and two big headings to get us through, uh, a genuine death and then a purposeful death. So first, a genuine death, uh, which is not just from the description in verse 30 of how Jesus bowed his head and then gave up his spirit, uh, nor even from verse 33, where the soldiers come to Jesus to break his legs, but they find that he's already died. But most of all, in verse 34, where one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, uh, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. Now, the context of all this is that the Jewish leaders are racing the clock. For them, this death of Jesus is taking place under extreme time pressure. Because, you see, verse 31, we're told that it's the day of preparation. That means it's the day before the Sabbath. In our terms, we would say Friday ahead of Saturday, the weekly day of rest. This particular Sabbath, though, was a very special Sabbath. In fact, we might even say it was perhaps the most special Sabbath in the whole Jewish calendar because it was the Sabbath that fell in the midst of the Passover celebration, the Jewish Passover. That most amazing annual celebration where the Jews remembered uh, with all sorts of a kind of carefully observed tradition. They've been doing it now for over a thousand years by this point. And they remembered the way that God had rescued them from slavery in Egypt back at the start of the Old Testament story. But you see, earlier that day, at their own insistent request, Jesus has been crucified along with two criminals, one on each side. Uh, but back in the Old Testament, the Jews have got a law that says anyone who hangs on a tree is under God's curse and they must not be left hanging there overnight. And so this is where the time pressure comes from, especially in the lead up to this very special Sabbath day that is so quickly approaching. And so they go to Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, and ask that he will have the legs of the crucified men broken and the bodies brought down from the tree, from the cross. 
Uh, this was something the Romans would sometimes do when they needed to hurry things along a little bit. Uh, with their legs broken, it would be impossible for the crucified person to kind of heave their body weight up on their feet so that they could get air into their lungs and therefore the, their end would come much faster. But when the soldiers get to Jesus, they find that the breaking of legs is completely unnecessary because he has already died. No doubt having already been considerably weakened by the flogging he received earlier on in the chapter. And here is where one of the soldiers pierces his side with a spear, bringing the sudden flow of blood and water. The experts tell us that uh, this is absolutely the kind of thing we might reasonably expect from a person who has just died and then been pierced with a spear from below. The blood, perhaps, coming straight from the heart. The water being the clear liquid from the protective sac, the pericardial sac that sits around the heart. And the whole scene cries out that this was a genuine death, a real death, an authentic death. Uh, every now and then uh, you may still hear someone try to argue their way out of the resurrection of Jesus that we're going to remember on Sunday by suggesting that Jesus didn't really die and uh, perhaps he simply fainted, he just kind of collapsed into unconsciousness and then revived later in the cool of the tomb. Uh, that idea, though, really flies in the face of at least three bits of evidence. Uh, first, the deep animosity that the Jewish leaders had towards Jesus for having worked so very hard to have him executed. Even though there was no basis for a charge against him, can we really imagine that they would have been satisfied without being certain that he was dead? Especially when they saw that the soldiers didn't break his legs. They would have got into that. Uh, then, of course, there are the Roman soldiers, these expert executioners. They've turned this barbaric act into an art form. Uh, can we really imagine that they couldn't tell the difference between a man who had died and a man who had merely collapsed? Indeed, is that not the most likely explanation for the spear in the side to make absolutely certain that he had died? And then finally, of course, there is also the eyewitness testimony of John, our author, who in verse 35 writes about himself in the anonymous third person, as he usually does. The man who saw this has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth. And he testifies so that you also may believe. In other words, this is not hearsay. This is not just kind of one of the many rumours that was flying around at the local pub. Now, this is John's own legally binding eyewitness testimony. So, friends, the benefits of Good Friday for us begin with recognising that Jesus' death was a real death. It was an authentic death. It was a genuine death beyond any shadow of doubt. But more than simply knowing that Jesus died, we need to understand why Jesus died. And here's where the first few verses become really important for us because they show us that Jesus' death was not just a genuine death, it was also a purposeful death. 
Uh, people are often interested in, in a famous person's last words. I don't know if you've ever looked for this online, but there's just kind of endless pages of them. Uh, Winston Churchill's, I'm bored with it all. Uh, Oscar Wilde, apparently, who said, uh, this wallpaper and I are fighting a duel to the death. Either it goes or I do. And the wallpaper stayed. Uh, I also like there's a, a 17th century French grammarian who apparently said, I'm about to or I'm going to die. Either usage is correct. <laughs> These statements often bring a bit of a wry smile to our face, don't they? Sometimes the best of them might make us think a little bit, but none of them has the revelatory power and the abiding significance of the words that Jesus spoke at the hour of his death. Uh, we know of seven statements that Jesus cried from the cross. All of them help us understand the unique things that were happening as he died. But they are directed to different people. Uh, three of them are spoken either in prayer or in anguish directly to his heavenly father. Uh, one of them is directed to one of the criminals at his side. Another is spoken to his mother and to one of his disciples. And the last two are at the start of our passage. In verse 28, he says, I thirst. And this seems to be spoken directly to the soldiers who are on duty because no sooner are the words out of his mouth than they, they get a sponge and they soak it in some wine vinegar that was nearby and they put it on the stalk of a hyssop plant and they lift it and they put it to his lips. And we're told that this happened to fulfill Old Testament scripture and, and earlier on we read a portion of Psalm 69 by Israel's great King David in a time of his own extreme suffering. And he talked about how he looked for sympathy but he could find none and he looked for comforters but he could find none. He could only find those who gave him vinegar to drink. Aside from fulfilling that scripture, though, I suspect the greater reason that Jesus mentions his thirst is because by being able to wet his mouth, that will then enable his next words to be heard by everyone, to be heard as an announcement for the ages, not just by those who were there when he died, but, but in every time and place where this passage continues to be read and heard, even for us today. He wetted his mouth so that these next words would come out clearly. I think that's because what Jesus says next is really the most sublime declaration of the extraordinary benefits of Good Friday that are available to everyone. Even us here this morning, some 2,000 years later, on the other side of the world. It's just three words in English. In the original Greek of the New Testament, it's one word. It's so punchy. It is finished. 
It's just three words in English. It's such a significant idea, though, that John's actually snuck it in for us three times, although one of them's a little bit hard to see in our English translation. So up on the screen, later on, verse 28, later, knowing that everything had now been finished and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, or actually so that the scripture would be finished. It's the same word in Greek. It's the only time John uses this particular word in the whole gospel to talk about the fulfillment of scripture. Every other time he uses a different word. This time he uses the finish word. And then verse 30, Jesus said, it is finished. See, this is the thing we need to understand about Jesus' death. It was a purposeful death. It achieved something. It accomplished something. It finished something. These last words of Jesus are not a cry of resignation or personal defeat, as if he said, I am finished. No, they are a cry of completion and therefore victory. Think of a couple who's finally paid off a 30-year mortgage. Think of someone graduating from uni or walking out of their final HSC exam. I mean, that's the kind of thing that is being spoken about. It is done. It is complete. It's over. It's finished. Little wonder then that when Jesus said these words, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit because he is the one in full control here. No one takes his life from him. He lays it down of his own accord because it is finished. But what is the it that is finished? What, what is this thing that has been victoriously completed by Jesus' suffering and death? I think verses 36 and 37 really give us some clues. Two quotes straight from the Old Testament. One from the start of the Old Testament. One from the end of the Old Testament. Because that whole story of Israel is encapsulated in what happens to Jesus. In verse 36, it's a quote from the book of Exodus at the start of the Old Testament story. Actually, that very first Passover that we've already mentioned, which the Jews still remembered every year at this time of year. This very special Sabbath, that was Passover time, and Exodus comes, when the very first Passover. The Israelites were enslaved in Egypt, and time after time, God had demanded that the Egyptian king let them go again and again. He had refused. And God said that he would therefore come against them in a terrifying act of judgment. Across the whole land of Egypt, to every household in the land of Egypt... And the Jews could escape this judgment only by killing an unblemished lamb and then marking their door with its blood. And whenever the Lord saw a door covered in the blood, he would pass over that house and spare them from judgment. That's where the word Passover comes from. But after the lamb had been killed, the Jews were then to cook it and to eat it. And one of the instructions about how this was to be done is that they were not to break any of its bones. Now, can we see the echoes of all that here in John 19? It's Passover time. The blood of Jesus has been shed. But he dies without any of his bones being broken. 
In other words, he is the great fulfillment of everything that every Passover for over a thousand years had pointed forward to and anticipated. He dies as the Lamb of God in the place of people to spare them from God's judgment. Then in verse 37, it's a quote from the book of Zechariah, a passage where God comes to his people as their rescuing king uh, to deliver them from the hand of all their enemies. But for a moment in time, they completely reject him, piercing him, and then looking on. And so as well as being the Lamb of God who dies in our place to spare us from God's judgment, Jesus is the King that God has sent to rescue his people. But he accomplishes that rescue through his own rejection and by being pierced. Friends, here is the work that Jesus has finished. Here is the task that Jesus has accomplished. Here is the mission that Jesus has achieved And which the last three words that he speaks in verse 30 so victoriously proclaim to the whole world. He is speaking about nothing less than his work of salvation for us. For people like you and I. Where does all this go for us? Well, the other day I read an article that was reflecting on some of the terrible things that have been happening in Ukraine. The basic gist of the article is that in the modern West, where it seems like the vast majority of people have really turned away from the Christianity of the past, the suffering and evil that we've witnessed in Ukraine brings something of an existential crisis. For in a world without God, how are the horrors of Mariupol to be explained in any morally or intellectually satisfying manner? To put it simply, if people are basically good and increasingly powerful, how come there is so much suffering and evil in the world? Here is one answer to that question suggested by the British Humanist Association. Not speaking particularly about Ukraine, but generally the problem of suffering and evil. For humanists then, the answer to the question why bad things happen is simply because they do. That's just the way the world is. In other words, bad stuff just happens. Suffering and evil just happen. All we can do in response is give a kind of detached emotional shrug and try as hard as we can to get on with life. Friends, the Bible tells a very different story. One where all suffering and evil are traced back ultimately to our human dismissal of God, to our natural unwillingness to recognise his goodness or to live under his rule. I see the events of Easter cry down to us through the ages that in response to our rejection of him, God did not give a detached emotional shrug. Instead, he laid a plan that would deal with sin, that would make it possible for people to be spared judgment, have their sins forgiven, receive his gift of eternal life. 
And that plan started with the story of Israel in the Old Testament, but it comes to its climax and its ultimate fulfillment in the passion of Christ, the suffering and the death of Christ, dying as the King God sent to rescue his people by being pierced in their place, dying as the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. In the movie Saving Private Ryan, uh, a US Army captain played by Tom Hanks leads a, a group of other soldiers to find and retrieve a paratrooper, a private James Francis Ryan. His three brothers have all recently been killed in action. Near the end of the movie, the, the rest of the soldiers are all dead and the captain is dying and, and he's speaking to Private Ryan and he says, earn this. Earn it. And at the end of the movie, a now elderly Private Ryan stands by the grave of that captain and he says that he hopes he earned it. And you can just sense how much his life has been lived under the burden of those two words. The three words from Jesus are better. He offers something so much more powerful, so much more life-giving, even for eternal life. Because even from the cross, he said, it is finished. God bless you this Easter.